Well, welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Kelly. Uh, we don't have Bailey here right now, unfortunately, um, but we're very excited because we have a guest here, uh, Jonathan Buckingham, who we have been interacting with on Twitter quite a bit, and you've probably seen some of his tweets. He's been uh, re-watching and, and tweeting about The Wire and has some great points to share. So, Jonathan, why don't you start, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what brought you to The Wire and why you keep coming back to the show. Um, I appreciate being on here with you guys. This is really cool. Um, I guess, a long story short, the reason I stumbled on The Wire was I just sat down on a Sunday afternoon uh, in October of 2006 and... I had seen the, the documentary about um, New Orleans and the, the effects of Katrina, and it featured Wendell Pierce, and I was like, that guy's really cool. I, I really need to check out this show that he's on. And I just stumbled on it one day, uh, flipping through the channels, and it was season four. And I can just say, just to some, make a summary of, of my thoughts in that moment was, one, I've never seen anything on TV that was that detail-oriented. And of course, you know season four, it's based on, or it, it explores... The, the politics and the school side of, of the fictitious Baltimore. Right. And I've been in politics. Um, at the time, I, I was getting out of politics, but I had worked in politics, and it it rang so true. I was like, wow. No, most TV shows don't get it. And I thought the acting was phenomenal, the writing was phenomenal. And at that point, I figured out that the rest of the episodes were on demand, and I watched as many as I could. And then the next week, they showed another episode, and, and that that's when I was hooked. And as soon as that season was over, I just went out. This was long before everything was kind of uh, centralized and on demand, and you couldn't watch it anytime you want. So I went out and bought all the seasons that were available. I, I was just hooked. And I keep coming back to it because it really nails, um, I think, America in general. Not all the aspects of America, but specifically the big city and medium-sized cities and, their, and the experience of its citizens and its... Um, police and and of course the the drug game yeah and i just think it rings really true i don't think it's a documentary i don't think it's that true but it's really close and it just brings me back time i was certainly um advocating for less of the policies that they were against uh, aka the drug war and since then uh, you know i you know it, it helped me organize my my mind and my thoughts about it and it was just great. Um, that's and all I could say. <laughs> so then I have a question about that. If you kind of came along and um, just saw season four on a channel and you were uh, immersed in it, like you're kind of coming in late to the narrative. And, and so were you able to kind of pick up on the storyline or, or did you need to make sure that, that, that you went back? Question. Yeah, I mean, um, because I'm like... I was instantly obsessive. I was literally instantly obsessive. So I would be, this is terrible. I'd be at work and when there was downtown, I'd be like researching David Simon (laughs) and stuff. So when season, when I finally watched season three, I knew what was going to happen, you know, to uh, everyone's favorite pretty boy, um, who my wife was just talking about earlier and uh, and extolling his beauty. Um, And that would be Mr. Elba. And um, so I, I kind of, you know, it was easy really because, when you come from that world, I worked in a city, um, Portsmouth, Virginia. It's about a sixth of the population of Baltimore, but it has all the same problems. It has um, um, 
uh, about a 50-50 split as far as race goes. So it's a little different from Baltimore. And there's a lot of tension there. If you were to look up um, Portsmouth, Virginia right now, you would see a lot of news stories that, you know, um, would, would, would reflect that. So um, I worked in that city. I've worked in other cities around here, like Norfolk's a little bit bigger. Matter of fact, if you ever watch in season two, uh, they mentioned Norfolk and Hampton Roads uh, as the port that the ships will go to before they go to Baltimore. Um, so okay. we're in competition f- with them. Uh, the thing that gives us a, a slight edge in, in some cargo is that we are right at the uh, mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. So if you go to Baltimore, you have to come by us and go north to go to Philly and Baltimore and, and Wilmington, Delaware. And so, you know, that's that's a reference point for where I'm where I live and we're a big um, Navy town and of course a big port town. So definitely two really speak to you then. Oh yeah, definitely. Because I know people that work the docks. I know people that work those jobs and they're, and they're, um, you know, one of the things that the wire, um, you know, portrays in season two is how dangerous a job it is. Um, you know, there's a famous scene where, you know, what's it? New Roy. What's his name? New Charles. New Charles. Okay. New Charles. And then, you know, so you can see that and, and growing up around the water all my life, it really rang true um, from the experiences that I've had, you know, with my friends who've worked down there. And um, it is a problem for Baltimore and, and what Frank was trying to do um, to dredge the port was something very important. Another important thing, this is a sidetrack, but um, when they get them off the, um, cargo trip the ships there are certain tunnels for the railroad in and around baltimore that have to be heightened so they can do the double um they can put two cans on one you know one okay like double stacked right so yeah they have some problems and and not all of them were illuminated in season two but certainly they were onto something and one thing that you have to give the wire credit for is they're not going to just you know half asset excuse my language but they're going to they're going to bring in Rafael Alvarez who worked, you know, with the Sun as a reporter, but he also grew up around the port. So they knew their stuff. And and that's one thing that's great about the wire, the verisimilitude is is so spot on for a television show. In a world of CSI Miami, you you have to oh, give them yeah. credit. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I'm, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, like, we've talked about CSI on this podcast before. Sure. We've talked about Breaking Bad on this podcast and and some of the other sort of crime shows that are out there and how, you know, it it uh, follows that sort of law and order formula of, mm-hmm. uh, of everything getting solved. And that's um, one of the great things about The Wire is that it doesn't give you that sort of easy payoff. Um, it's you know, one of the main themes that we see again and again is kind of like the letdown or like the, the failure in a way. Okay. So I got a point about Moby Dick. Okay. So Ishmael is the narrator, obviously he comes in with certain preconceived notions and this gets to, uh, I read something about, um, some people think that Moby Dick is a book about epistemology and, um, I'm not an expert on this. And, uh, you know, I might stumble here, but one of the things about Ishmael is he's got preconceived notions. They're not the truth, but they're preconceived notions. So when he goes and meets Queequeg, for example, he's like, I can't sleep with this guy. He's a cannibal, whatever. And he's making all these assumptions and they ended up being the best of friends and he learned something. Now, if you're a viewer of American television 
and you watch CSI Miami. Similarly, you're going to sit down and watch The Wire and go, you mean the cops have problems? You mean <laughs> that, you know, they don't just solve crimes automatically? They don't have all the resources they need? Oh, you mean the upper the upper brass, the, the, the lieutenants, the majors, the commissioner are working against them? That has to be um, a great example of that, of this shock of like, wow. It's an eye opener. For me, it wasn't as much because I, you know, I have a political science degree. I know how bureaucracies work, but it still was eye opening in the sense that every other television show with few exceptions is like, oh yeah, here's the, here's the information. Here's the DNA. Go ahead and help me solve this crime. Right. Yeah. And and always having that last minute, something that solves everything. Um, Interesting that you, you bring up the, um, the Ishmael example from Moby Dick and becoming friends with someone that he had all these preconceived notions. I think we probably see that a few times in the wire. Um, Like one example I can think of is how McNulty grows to have this sort of respect. And I don't know if it's friendship, but it's like a sort of a bond with Bodhi by the time season four comes around and, and McNulty started, you know, calling Bodhi Mr. Shit here. So, um, yeah, kind of neat to see how that plays out as well. And McNulty kind of, from 30,000 feet, McNulty is Captain Ahab. Yeah. So tell us, this was um, a point that you brought up when we were interacting on Twitter was this similarity between those two characters. So tell us what, what drew your attention to that. Well, I think he's more Captain Ahab-like. Um, in singular in focus and the great line that kind of uh, shows this is that when he says they don't get to win we get to win yeah and that's that singular focus of winning versus uh, Barksdale and then eventually what leads him to um, his insanity which is the uh, serial killer um, right. plot line which you know everyone it's it's controversial I would say that Um to a lot of people. Um, but I, I like it. And, you know, Captain Ahab, for instance, you know, he has got to get that white whale. And mm-hmm. I think that's where there's a little bit of difference there in between the two characters when you get down to the granular level, where <clears throat> Captain Ahab, and I've read people that are smarter than me who, who do this for a living that say, Captain Ahab sees the whale as mysterious and he wants to reveal the whale by catching the whale and, and yeah. besting the whale. And I think that's where it kind of separates from McNulty. McNulty is so <laughs> egotistical that it's not really a mystery who these people are. He is impressed by them for sure. Uh, and I think if you're going to make that comparison, the white whale is an Avon. The white whale is uh, <laughs> Stringer Bell because he's sitting there with yeah. Bunk and he's like, he doesn't even know that I caught him on the wire. And and, yeah. and and McNulty is revealed. And so, you know, Stringer Bell is the is the white whale for McNulty. Now, if you for me, I I've thought about this for on and off for years. And maybe I didn't really like coalesce these thoughts, but to me, in a weird way, if you're looking at a comparison between the wire and, and Moby Dick, um, the war on drugs is the whale because they're sending these people out to catch the whale 
and they're in these wooden boats. And if you know anything about Moby Dick, you guys do, you know, uh, one of the things that happens when you become overzealous to catch this magical mythical white whale is that the white whale is going to destroy your ship. And similarly, the war on drugs, this quest for the war on drugs to win it has destroyed policing in America. It's, it's incredible. I mean, they used to solve 70% of murders back in the eighties in Baltimore. They don't, oh. they don't even solve 40% now. And I know you'd like the, them to start solve somewhere around 90 to 100% of those murders. But when you're under 40%, there is literally a, a, a vacuum uh, in which, the, you know, um, solving murders would, would, would convince people that were interested in murdering other people to maybe think twice about it. But if you're not solving even 40%, there's no deterrent. The idea of the the percentage is really important in the wire because we we see Rawls sort of obsessing over I am exactly, you know, 51.1%. And Nalty, if you bring me these 14 dead girls, then you know, what does that do to the to the average? So um yeah, there's a lot of um worry over over exactly what you just brought up. Right. And there's um in what you just said, um, you're, you're you're showing this example of where it just comes down to numbers, dope on the table. What's your murder rate clearance? Where it just lacks this nuance to be able to do the job that they're set out to do. I think it's interesting that Raw's kind of becomes he, he's kind of a bad guy, but he's not. He's just a product of the system, mm-hmm. and he's. He's smart enough in, in his own way to say, you know what, I'm not going to beat the system. Whereas McNulty on, you know, on the other hand is like, yeah, not only do they not get to win, we're going to win and we're going to show you how to do it right and improve the whole thing, which I think what, what makes, you know, McNulty a tragic character because it destroys his life. I mean, he's, he's horrible. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, it it is like Captain Ahab in a lot of ways. Um, I'll just read this. uh, I have to admit on this podcast for everybody that I didn't read Moby Dick, but I've been doing research. And it's one of those um, novels that is so um, like steeped in our collective consciousness that Mm -hmm. I, I think I can still have this conversation. But I I did do research on this. So for anyone who is like me and doesn't know the story that much, this is, uh, it was published in 1851. Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. And it follows Captain Ahab on, on, as you said, Jonathan, this, this quest to get the white whale. And like, it's really um, a story of sort of, um, like I guess maybe vengeance in a way, but also this this hubris or this uh, pride that leads to a final downfall, um, and and we see that with McNulty, of course, and the fact that McNulty has a sort of metaphorical death at the end or death mm-hmm. of his career um, is another sort of mirroring of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, now. What do you think about some of the sort of similarities just in the style of of Moby Dick? Um, you said it was a a study in epistemology. Is that what you said? Right. And that was one of the things that I that I found in my research. And I did some research like you did. But I, very that's a that's a great question. And it's 
it's an easy one to answer because one of the things that Melville does is two things, actually. One, he describes everywhere he goes in this great detail that if you're reading it, it's, you know, everybody's different when they read. But when I'm reading it, I'm seeing exactly what he's saying. I can, I can envision the house that um, Ishmael first goes to when he gets to, um, uh, it's, it's Nantucket, maybe? No, he first goes to one city that's further in the coast, but then they take a boat to Nantucket. And I can see it. And, and that's what the wire does. The camera in the wire is so descriptive without mm-hmm. being showy. And the other thing I think that he does really well and that the wire does really well is that they, they, they show the people, the characters, they don't explain it, but over time you, you understand these characters and what that does, it sets up moments. You just mentioned Bodhi in season one. He talks about the bald, you know, pieces on the chessboard, the pawns. And then Season four, he's on the bench with McNulty eating outside and they're talking about this again. These are moments, you know, and, and D'Angelo says to Bodie in season one that they get capped. The pawns get capped quick. And he says, well, what if you're a smart pawn? And he says, well, you know, he he doesn't know yet. It's a, it's a bit of foreshadowing there, but you cannot have those force. You cannot kill Bodie and, and make people feel it in season four without going through all this that uh, David Simon and crew, Ed Burns and all those do. And you lead up to that point where he, where he, you know, he says, I'm going to make my stand because he's, he's gotten to the point where the drug game no longer needs him. And he, he no longer likes the drug game. Almost. You almost feel that. Yeah. When he kicks that cop's car. Right. He kicks that he kicks that cop's car a few episodes before because they, you know, Lester in a brilliant. I mean, it's probably one of my favorite storylines in the wire. When when uh, Lester figures out that these row houses are tombs. Oh, and, that's a great story. Oh yeah, it's great, right? And so, you know, Bodie just happens to be walking by at night and, you know, he's f- figuring out that that's what they've been doing with all the bodies is here they are in the row houses and he kicks that cop's car. He's done with the system. And, and the a, a brilliant point that Simon and company make is that a certain population in America, especially in these big cities are no longer needed. They've just been thrown away. And for a while, Bodie, you know, he has purpose. He's in the drug game. He's moving up, you know? Um, but eventually they spit him out because they don't need him anymore. And he's killed. Yeah. You know, like there's, sad. um, it's, you can feel his sort of sadness uh, mm-hmm. being expendable, and I think it's it's kind of similar to the um, the way that the docs are kind of making these characters. You know, they it shows how they're no longer becoming relevant to whatever exactly. trade they were in, um, and you know, the sadness of Frank Sabatka, and in some ways, is like right. that sadness of Bodie. Um, one thing that I found in reading, and I've I read the book Moby Dick a long time ago and I'm going back through a book on tape because I can do like three things at the same time and listen to it. Um, but one of the things that is talked about and it goes back to epistemology is the duality of people, the dual nature of people where um, in a way everyone has these two sides to them. 
you know, a great example is Frank Sabaka. Here's a guy that we all root for who wants to save his labor union. He wants to save the port. He wants to save the docks. On the other hand, in order to do that, he gets in bed with the Greek and ends up having these bodies on his conscience. Yep. You know, and it's this struggle that everyone goes through of like, you know, you know, Ishmael, he's got these preconceived notions about Queequeg and he finds out, you know, that, that dual nature of people, whereas you're, you've got these beliefs about things and then they're turned on their head because they're not what truth is. And I think the wire has always tried to get to the truth of the situation in the inner city and on the docks it, it, in politics you know, it goes from, you know, one aspect of the city to the next. And I think that's interesting because that's a big part of the book Moby Dick. You know, Captain Ahab is crazy, but he does show signs of compassion towards Pip, who, who works on the boat with him. He's the youngest member of the crew. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's present, too. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the idea of showing this truth of um, all these different institutions mm -hmm. and characters. Um in both The Wire and Moby Dick uh, showing that duality as well, because Moby Dick is often cited as this great American novel. It's on the list of, you know, right. maybe there's 10 others that people really always think of first. And the great American novel, this is a term that's from John William DeForest uh, in The Nation, 1868. I'll just read a, a passage from that. It says, the great American novel, the picture of the ordinary emotions and manners of American existence. This task of painting the American soul within the framework of a novel has seldom been attempted and has never been accomplished further than very partially. Now that essay was from 1868. So 17 years after Moby Dick was written. So mm -hmm. in this critic's mind, that book didn't make the cut yet. And um, right. earlier you and I were talking about how another similarity between Moby Dick and The Wire was this lack of sort of critical reception when it first mm -hmm. came out. So do you want to just, um, yeah, say a just a brief history. Yeah. Brief history of that. It's good. Um, is that the, the Brits were the first to review it and they really liked it, but some of them were angry or kind of tempered their review because in the copies that they received, they were like, how come the narrator is able to tell this story if he dies? But Ishmael actually doesn't die, but it was, um, they, for the American edition, it was an updated version where there was a, you know, at the end they tacked on that Ishmael survived um, the attack. And so, but yeah, I mean, it really didn't happen until the late, the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century that he received this. Now you would say, well, the wire, you know, in, within 10 years had a great audience and had this great following. Well, I mean, things move a lot quicker these days. Yeah. We're obviously. moving a lot faster now. Yeah. I mean, they had to wait for the book to go across the ocean and then come <laughs> back, you know, it was, it was a different time. And yes, there was telegraphs, but they didn't work that great. I mean, no one was telegraphing somebody in England. Did you hear about this book? You know? So. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, do you think part of it is, like, the density of the material, like, the level of detail, like, you know, some people say about Moby Dick, you know, there's just these really long, long, long passages that are so detailed about 
um, the whaling uh, practices and industry. And in oh, that's that's it. That, that I mean, that's that's perfect. That's the reason why. If you start reading it, it starts with "Call me Ishmael." That's the first line. Everybody knows that. Yeah. But then he d- deep dive into like explaining like he goes up to this building it ends up being a black church but he's spending you know page after page describing it and uh, and i think that's great and the wire is the same way if you watch that first couple episodes of the wire see i was lucky because i'd already seen season four i went back to season one i knew what they were doing and all this detail and it's great and 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 david simon always says f the average viewer which is a, a great approach because it allows you as the viewer or in the case of Moby Dick, the reader to really immerse yourself in that world. It's, 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 it's its own reward to go through yeah. that. Yeah. And it is like, it's, it's dense. And I was oh, just yeah. having this conversation with someone last night who said that they had tried to watch the first couple episodes of the wire and couldn't understand, um, right. you know, some of the, the dialogue and the, the sort of street, jargon that they use and what I always say to people is you have to just let it wash over you just let it wash exactly. over you and it will reveal itself and um probably Moby Dick feels the same when oh, you're um, I think Moby Dick's overwhelmed even more that. dense even what's more. that I think even Moby Dick is even more dense because I mean with television you know you're just sitting there for 60 minutes at a time with most of these shows and they get they get going you know you start you know there's funny moments there's interesting moments you know you can't call this a war because wars end that's yeah. interesting he starts bringing you in but moby i mean you, you he spends i think a whole chapter just talking about his classification of whales and i want to look up this but he says they're fish he says i know they're fish even though we know they're not fish right and i don't know if the study of whales at that point in 18 the 1800s was that advanced given you know they were riding around in wooden boats you know trying to like look at whales it's not like they're diving in the water with them right. so um you know he spends a whole chapter just doing that and he spends chapters where he's just talking about the relationship between Queequeg and himself and you're not really getting to the meat of the stuff and and by the third episode of the wire you're really getting into the meat of it Sure. So I think it is a little less dense, although. Yeah. Well, both, and yeah. when you're watching it, like, you know, right. 50% of your information is coming at you visually. It doesn't have to go through the task of describing sure. the scene and describing the interiority and, and the thoughts and everything the way that the novel does. So, mm-hmm. so that makes sense for sure. Um, I'm just going to read another passage here. This is from um, the LA Times about what, what qualities exist in the great American novel. It says, The Great American Novel, a book that most perfectly imagines the kaleidoscope of our nation, its social fabric and its troubled conscience, its individual voices and strivings, our loves and losses. If some of the classic examples, Moby Dick, The Great Gatsby, are as much about failure as success, the arc of those narratives is always anchored in hope. So, Jonathan, what do you think about that? Like, I think the first half, certainly, we can say that applies to The Wire, the kaleidoscope of the nation, social fabric. What about the idea of being anchored in hope, even if it's about as much failure as success? Well, I think that comes out in the individual characters. Because, and this is just, you know, basic psychology, I guess, in in a way. Because no one wakes up, very few people, and there are some problems, you know, people have problems for sure. People don't wake up and go, oh man, I just can't do it anymore. I mean, some people do, obviously, but 
most people have this optimism and whether it's misguided or not, I think the great American novel really gets at that, you know, this duality of, of in, in America, we have this problem. You've probably heard of it. People don't want to raise taxes on rich people because they think one day they'll be rich. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the interesting, you know, dichotomy of the way people think in America. And I, and I'm making it more simple than it really is, but I think that's always there. And, they are rooted in hope because America is a hopeful place, but that hopefulness definitely obscures the fact that there are many problems and yeah. that in a way the hope kind of puts a blanket on top of those problems because psychologically most people don't want to deal with that. That's what's interesting about McNulty and the people that are good police that they want to do it the right way, but they are the exception. They are not the rule. Yeah. The rule is Rawls and Burrell. Yeah. Yeah. The institutions. Well, I was, you know, it's, that's a great point because I think about some of the characters and I'm like, they are rooted in hope. You know, the bubbles arc gives us hope at the end, right. but then for every hopeful outcome, we have a, a sad outcome. Like, you know, Dookie now is going to just take that place. And it's like a, a wheel that it's, um, mm -hmm you know, the spokes keep going around. I don't really know what metaphor I'm going for here, but it's kind of sure. uh, cyclical. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, um, but I came across it in the last six months to a year that there was, I wait, wasn't it you guys that talked about the fight between Simon, David Simon and Sanja San? Was that your podcast? I'm, forgive me if I'm wrong, but there was. Now, I don't think that was our podcast that we talked okay. about it, but I know the reference you're making because right. um, I read about it in All the Pieces Matter. That's the way I read it. Okay. But tell everyone because not, not everyone's going right. to be familiar so, with it. And I think David Simon is a bit of a mystery to a lot of people. I think I've met him one and a half times <laughs> um, and I found him incredibly nice. Not only that, but just down to earth and like, I almost felt guilty for talking to him. I didn't want to be that, you know, thing where people bother these celebrities and he's not a super celebrity, but so he has this argument with Sanja San, who plays Detective Griggs and Detective says, Detect, uh, Sanja San says that there has to be hope. And I would disagree with her saying that there wasn't hope because you've got Cuddy, you've got Bubbles, you've got some instances of hope in the wire. Yeah. But uh, let me surmise David Simon's counter argument, which was it has to be bleak to hit people, to change people, or at least to attempt to change people's minds. And, and, and you know the story well, too. So if you want to add to it, but basically they were going back and forth between, you know, it she was saying there's got to be more hope. He's got to, he's saying it's got to be bleak. Um, because of the subject matter and because you don't want to paper over that. And I kind of agree with both of them in a weird way. Um, there has to be some hope. And I think they did have the hope, like I said earlier, but with Cuddy and Bubbles. And, and, and also, and you had a great interview with him, um, ja Jamie McCollum, is that right? Julito. Right? Um, uh, the guy that plays Naaman? Yeah, that's Julito no. McCollum. No, who, yeah, yeah, Julito, sorry. My bad. Um, and, and the, he had a good outcome because of what, you know, for all the things that um, Bunny Colvin wanted to do to help these kids in the school, he wasn't able to help all of them or even a majority of them, but he was able to help um, Naaman. And, and that's a great 
point. But I think this back and forth between those two is interesting because Sanja, she grew up maybe 20 miles from me in a place called Newport News, which wow. is a very tough place. It, um, uh, Alan Iverson, who's a, a basketball player, came yeah. from there. Um, the guy with the dogs, Michael Vick, you know, he came from there too. And it's a tough place. And sh- I've read quotes from her and articles featuring her saying that she had many negative interactions with the police and the interesting thing about her i think her performance is fantastic by the way but she in the first season was having problems with lines and i think that was in her head she was portraying a police officer and her life experience had been negative with police officers and that conflict was really getting at her and having making it hard for her to do her job and they a couple of the actors sat her down like um I believe it was Wendell Pierce and a few others said, you can do this. And they were really encouraging her, reassuring her. And, and so the wire, one thing the wire does really well is it puts people in position like Wendell Pierce, who had a interesting um, background and, and, and life story growing up in New Orleans and someone like Sanja San, who came from, uh, you know, Newport news is a lot like Baltimore. I mean, a lot. It's a port city, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of violence. And so they really did a great job. Alexa Vogel has got to be one of the best casting directors out there. A just fantastic job she did. Yeah. Finding these people, the people in Baltimore and the people from outside Baltimore. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing how Mm -hmm. um, much a sense of the city that you get through these portrayals. Oh, yeah. And, well, and that's like Moby Dick because he really he doesn't he doesn't skip over everything. You know everything about New Bedford. That was the original town that Ishmael shows up in. Then he rides the boat out to Nantucket, and he describes those places wonderfully. Um, and you get a sense of them, and that that's similar to the Wire. Well, and the idea of being rooted in hope. I mean, it's kind of right. Why why go back out on the boat unless you think you're going to get the whale? Right? There's something hopeful exactly. about just even you know, making the, the choice to, to start again or to go after it or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Ishmael, um, he, uh, or Melville as Ishmael really spends, you know, a few pages describing why he has to go to sea. And it's, it's, it's both because he becomes tired of the world that he's living in, but it's also hopeful for this new experience because I think Ishmael, I think, in your um, summation earlier, when you sent me um, through Twitter, um, that Ishmael is a lot like David Simon. And that's interesting because most people don't realize this, but when David Simon gets out of college and he's um, writing as a stringer at the Baltimore Sun, it's not that he's pro-war on drugs, but he's just like, okay, yeah, the war on, this is his perception and his beliefs. And he's like, yeah, the war on drugs, we got to fight it. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then two, three years into the job, he's like, oh my gosh, this is a giant failure and we have to stop it now. And mm-hmm. and that's that's part of that epistemology of, you know, having one's beliefs, which I mean, in this day and age, good Lord, couldn't be a better metaphor, and versus what the truth is. And we're living, we're literally living it, especially in America. I mean, I don't have to illuminate that. You, you, I think we all get it. If you're listening to a wire podcast, you you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, and we're, we're so happy to have you here and you know, you're from that area and really understand some of that 
um, like the American psyche. I mean, Bailey and I, we're Canadian. We live in Canada. So we're kind of like viewers from the outside in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't want to, we don't want to speak for um, a mindset that we aren't as familiar with. So it's really great to have you comment on that. Yeah. I'm going to get my uh, passport so I can move up there soon. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's very nice. My dad actually, um, one of his most recent jobs was um, right on the border at Presque Isle, Maine, and he could look out his window and see Canada. Oh, and cool. That was, was pretty cool. So, yeah. Well, I'd like to go to Montreal. That's where I'd like to go. But that's a fun that. city. Yeah, pretty cool place. So, but yeah. Um. So, I, you know, when I was researching what the great American novel is and what it means, there was some. Um, Uh, A quote from a professor at Harvard who said, the dream of the great American novel is less in the hands of credential critics and scholars to determine than the result of complex, messy interaction among the readers at large, literary entrepreneurialism of the writers themselves, publishing and education industries, and self-accredited freelance journalists and bloggers. So um, I think what he's driving at there is, it's not just the academics anymore who decide what represents America and that all these many voices that um, contribute to the life and readership and, and legacy of a novel, it's all of those people and, and including us who decide what that is. So like, what do you think about this idea of a piece of television as a great American novel? Like, can we go that far? Like, is the great American novel so hallowed that it must stay um, that sort of in that canon of, of classic novels that we all know? Or is there space for other types of media? That was a really long question. Sorry. Oh, Jonathan, I think you might be on mute. Yes, I accidentally clicked mute, but I was going to say you really surrounded it, and I really like his quote, because it gets at this idea, and I think, yes, The Wire can be, and television can be considered that, because things change over time, but, you know, anybody that's not those people that he mentioned in his quote can sit down and read Moby Dick, and they can understand it, and they can get what it's talking about without, you know, having some 300-level class in, in college. Um, to do so and I think similarly there's people like us who are the minority very small minority who really think about the wire you know a lot (laughs) yeah yeah the most people I meet just love the wire and when I start bringing in these like broader bigger points about the wire they can follow along but it's not necessarily why they watched it because they are being almost whereas we are seeing it for what it is as far as like all these themes and stuff they're not tricked into it, but they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's well, because at saying. the end of the day, it, it is a piece of entertainment first, exactly. right? Yeah, right. And the interesting thing about it is not only is it doing all those things that we're talking about, which is important, but it is incredibly entertaining and, and it's funny. Oh, my gosh. It's so it's funny. so funny. There's a it, lot it, of hilarious moments. Like when, when that guy, who's that cop that? who goes to Madame LaRue. I can never remember his name. You know, Madame LaRue uh, says, um, the thing. San, Santangelo? San, yeah. Santangelo goes up to, um, 
McNulty in season four, when McNulty's looking out for Omar and gets him a phone call, he's like, what are you, some kind of Democrat? <laughs> you know? I mean, there's moments like that. There's moments when Frank is talking about his his prowess, which are just hilarious. I mean, yeah. It's hilarious. You and, know, and- it would be a, a good topic for a future podcast episode, yeah. just the idea of comedy in The Wire, because you're right, there there is a lot. And I think we need it. In a, in, oh, yeah. You know, that's maybe that's a good balance to the bleakness. Um, that There's nothing wrong thinking. with the corner. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but the, the corner lacks that sense of humor because it's so dark. Yeah. And Whereas, so it doesn't have to be hope that offsets the bleakness. It can be yeah. laughter, maybe. Yeah, you know, like black humor, um, you know, the darker, you know, oh my gosh, this is really terrible, but we're going to make light of it because we have to. Um, another funny um another use of comedy in, in, in a situation like that is it, what they did in generation kill, which they didn't write, but obviously they produced the, the miniseries for HBO and there's a lot yeah. of humor in there. Um, I was but, just yeah. about to bring that up. I just watched that for the first time a couple weeks ago and it was deeply funny. Yes, it was. And, and, and I know that as a wire fanatic as I am, I, I, if anybody asked me, I'm like, one A is the wire and one B is generation kill. I mean, it's, it's that, it's that good to, in my mind. I, yeah. Maybe it's not, but yeah, I think they, and that goes back to, you know, what Melville was looking to do with the verisimilitude and what David Simon and Ed Burns were trying to do, you know, capture a place because Simon and company always say that the only people that they're worried about is the people they're talking about or the people that are in their shows. So they want to know that the cops say, Hey, we get it. You did a great job. You really got it. Same thing with the drug dealers or the Marines and generation kill. And that's important. And that's not, that's not part of the formula for a lot of shows. And and I love breaking bad, not to knock breaking bad, but some of the things are so fantastic that I'm like, I just, it's hard for me to like, you know, I'm like, really? I'll I'll knock breaking bad for you. I, I don't really, care yeah. for the um, the sort of shock and awe that they try to go it's a roller coaster through. show you know yeah. it's just up and yeah. down up and down and so but i like um i like what you said about trying to do justice to the people that sure. the story is about because we see in um it's season five when templeton fabricates the story about or exaggerates the story of what happened to the the veteran who was um like in a block black hop um accident and it turns out that it didn't happen like that and um the fellow that he interviewed says why would you have to lie about that you know what if someone who was on that mission reads that and you know you don't have to make it something it wasn't the story is is enough on its own i think that's a real um pointed example in the wire of trying to show that respect to um the people that you're speaking about exactly and it makes a larger point and it's kind of like this meta point, which is that David Simon's always trying to make, which is, hey, real life is more intricate, insane than anything you could ever make up. Game of Thrones included. Uh, yeah. um, you know, whatever nonsense you can come up with. Let me just tell you that the the reality of these people's lives, which I think they captured somewhere north of 90%, is way more important. And from a human perspective it it does it respects their lives it respects them it doesn't judge them and and yeah we can judge chris partlow and and 
certainly Marlowe and their dirty deeds and Avon and, and, and Weebay. But, you know, it still captures them as people and captures yeah. the people around them. And that's, that's something you don't see every day on television. Yeah, great, great point about there's no, no judgment. No one's vilified. Right. You know, look how many bad cops there are. I mean, good Lord. Remember when that cop gets his ring taken and they throw the paint on him? Yeah, everybody in America was, yeah, everybody's cheering that. Yes. Yeah. He was then, one of the most disliked. I mean, he's. Oh, horrible. Horrible. He broke Donut's fingers. <laughs> yeah, that was awful. <laughs> Donut was a bad driver, though. So <laughs> I guess he, he sometimes he, he put he put himself out there. But then there's that quote from McNulty about Walker. He's like, "Yeah, Walker's an asshole." He's talking to Bodie in the restaurant, and they're and they're laughing about it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. sort of a shared moment of of humanity there. Um, so I guess we'll sort of start wrapping up now. But sure, I wanted, yeah, this is really cool. Well, I just wanted to ask, like, tell us a little bit about where you are in your rewatching. You've got this great thread going that we'll share that in our show notes. Thank you. Um, where you I'm, I'm kind of starting and stopping, unfortunately, because when you're um, you got a job, you got a wife, you got kids, or you got a spouse, well, and you got kids. yeah, life There's lots of stuff you don't want the kids walking in when you're watching some of the scenes of the wire. Most of it, really. Um, I mean. Yeah. They, There'll be a point when, you know, my daughter's old enough and my son's old enough. We'll, we'll talk about The Wire. Um, but, yeah, I'm in season two, and I really love season two. I love all the seasons, really. But, um, you know, the whiplash for a lot of people going from season one to season two, and it, it was temporary because it, in real time, and I've read about it, you know, especially some of the actors were like, what are you doing, Simon? Why are you going to the docks? But I think it's brilliant. And it shows this courage that is lacking in a lot of art where, you know, you say, look, we're going to make this about this fictitious Baltimore yeah. and we're going to start with the dr drug dealers. There's a little bit of politicians in the, and there's a lot of cops, obviously cops and drug dealers in season one. And then season two, we're going to start to bring in more of the political side of it, but we're also going to bring in the death of work. And that's a brave thing to do. And, and I'm going to try to highlight that. I always try to highlight things that people don't talk about in the wire, but that's hard because there's so much discussion about the wire and it's really been covered for so many, from so many angles, excuse me. But you know, that's what I hope to do. And I, I really enjoy watching it. And, uh, you know, well, we've, we've been enjoying your tweets as well. Uh, for um, everyone out there, your handle on Twitter is at analog syndicate, right? Yep. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll put that in our show notes as well. Um, and so is there anything you've sort of noticed going through it again? Like any, anything you really appreciate even more this time around? Or is it just kind of, you know, good to go back and, and see it all again? I, I think, yes, it's good to go back and see it all again. I think one of the things that sticks out, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is, is actually McNulty and um, just how reckless in many ways he is other than being, you know, as a police officer, he can be reckless. And, but I, I, I welcome, you know, his challenging of authority. I welcome um, him doing the things that need to be done um, to solve the cases, but it really sticks out how terrible a person he is in a way. And it always was there, but I mean, it just sticks out more and more because I really love McNulty, but he is, he's hard to love. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. He um, sure is. And yeah, I um, mean, Lester's way cooler and smarter. Uh, and and doesn't you know leave a trail of destruction in his path although he is you know a little bit arrogant about you know his skills as well it, it, just like me so what what happens in season five is kind of you know i 
it, it honestly i feel like that that was bound to happen those two were going to be like yo whereas you see kima and bunk who are great cops natural police get the job done they're not interested in that so there's that there's that line that mcnulty and, and lester are willing to cross to point out because one of the quotes that I read recently about David Simon, and I've always thought this too, is that in America, we call people serial killers. And they usually boil down to some white guy stalking women and killing them yep. um, but, or, or young men or something like that. But really what Marlowe and Weebay and Chris Partlow and Avon and Stringer are all doing is, 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 is they're, they're serial killers. Um, and their victims are specific and the situations are specific, but no one, and I think a lot of this has to do with um, class and racism, do not see those as uh, serial killers. So they invent, you know, these poor defenseless uh, homeless people who are dying naturally and they're taking advantage of that. And that's how they get the funding to catch the actual serial killers. Is yeah. that wrong? Yeah, maybe. I think so, I mean but. Good point about the serial killer term because that's such a loaded term exactly. for um, for everyone, really. Like that means something specific, and it is strategic of McNulty and, and Lester to to use that term to get the attention and the excitement and then sensationalism that is needed. And yeah, it does come down to to class and and race in a lot of ways because, um, like, I don't remember the line exactly but from mm-hmm. bunk says you know one <laughs> yeah cheerleader in aruba from exactly that's it and it's interesting because in a way i don't know if mcnulty thought this because it's never really he never says this but what saves him what saves him and lester from probably going to jail for all this is the fact that all the politicians have come out uh during the the serial killer spree of the homeless people which wasn't real and said, we have to, what about us as people? We have to stop this. And this is yeah. so terrible. And what are they going to do? Come out and say, yeah, these guys made it up and I'm, you know, I'm a fool. No, they're not going to do it. It was like, it was, it was a stroke of genius or luck or something, you know, it prevented them from, you know, going out really bad. I mean, they lost their jobs and all, but I mean, at the same time, they didn't go to jail. They weren't dragged through the mud, through the press. Yeah, could have been worse for sure. No way. So this has been great. I, I really appreciate this. And if you need another hit on this, you need to clean some stuff up or whatever you guys need. I don't know how you edit, but you know, count me down. This was great. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah. on the podcast. It was great to talk to you. And um, we'll we'll share Jonathan's information with everyone when we put this episode out. But uh, we'll we'd love to chat with you again, Jonathan. Yeah, so please. hopefully Just we'll give me you know we'll again with you soon. Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And we'll see everyone next time way down in the hole.